Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He joins us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time here at JM in the AM. We call it the weekly update. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Malcolm. Good Chodesh. Nice to speak with you. We're four weeks away, four weeks from tonight from the brand new year, which we hope will be a year of tremendous simcha and uh, a much different year than the one that uh, is coming uh, to its conclusion. Uh, well, yesterday, of course, the culmination of the Democratic uh, National uh, Convention. We, we are interested, in all seriousness, anything you'd like to tell us about the nomination of Joe Biden or how you see the Democratic Party from uh, this point forward. But I'll ask you specifically to start with, how do you think the Democratic Party is going to deal with the Linda Sarsour problem? Well, I think the, they have dealt with it this week. Uh, the, the denunciation, uh, I don't think she spoke at the official convention. It was at the Muslim side meeting uh, that was taking place. But the very association with someone who has held the views and, and, and expressed the, the views that she holds uh, is... Uh, uh, obviously a matter that, that gets a lot of attention and deserves it. Uh, but the uh, spokesman for the vice president denounced her views and disassociated with it and got some flack for it afterwards. But I think that that was important in and of itself. But, the you know, we're going to have to see what happens now. We have, what, 80 days, 75 days to right. the to the election. Um, we'll, there was very little focus, if you noticed, on the international issues. Uh, overall, hardly anything on Iran, hardly anything on on uh, nothing on Israel. Um, there were, you know, there were a lot of other things that went on that were not necessarily broadcast uh, on the, the television. But in the speeches, you could you saw what the focus of, of virtually all the speakers was, and it was not on the uh, international agenda. Uh, in general, a lot of sound bites, a lot of key phrases, not a lot of policy issues across the board. I don't know if I'm being unfair, because when the Republicans do this in a few days, it may honestly be the same. A lot of phrases and sound bites and not a lot of policy. But nonetheless, uh, you, you certainly heard, anybody paying attention, heard uh, a lot of different opinions um, about, uh, or, or many opinions about how members of the Democratic leadership feel on really important issues when it comes to the United States, um, I think on the is mean, tell me if I'm wrong. I think on the Israel issues, aside from the Sarsour and that crowd problem, I think they were pretty good. Again, not a lot of token, not a lot of uh, uh, substance to the to the policy discussion, as you indicate. But it seems whatever did come up, they're 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 sort of still proud of the U.S. relationship with Israel. Could we at least conclude that. Well, the vice president, in, um, you know, rejected the attempts to put the word occupied right. into the platform. And there, I can tell you from inside, there was a lot, a lot of work done. There were a lot of efforts to introduce other things into the convention platform, which tells you about some of the players that are there. And certainly, look, you look at Bernie Sanders, look at some of the other players. We know that they uh, had favored um, sanctions, some of them, against Israel. Uh, I think they, uh, and that was uh, rejected. The um, and in Congress, overwhelmingly, I think the members of both sides of the aisle, as they did this week, when 387 members of Congress, you know, came out in support of extending the sanctions on Iran. Right. That is as bipartisan as you can get. 
So, you know, the emphasis everybody has is on the differences, on the support for the UAE. It was more or less bipartisan. I have to say I was surprised that many of the Democratic leaders didn't say anything or didn't certainly didn't react in the way that uh, one would have expected uh, to such a momentous uh, occasion. Um, but the, the vice president did, did acknowledge it. Others, Some others did say something. But the... You know, we're just getting into the really the meat of this, and without audiences, without rallies, without a lot of uh, things that we are used to, this is going to be a very different kind of campaign. And really boils down to two people, and it may even be one person. According to a lot of analysts, they say people are voting for or against Trump right. more than they are looking at anything else. But uh, obviously, I think uh, you know people expected. Uh, by virtue of a lot of things that build up, they were looking for him to stumble and to not be able to deliver the speech the way he did. Uh, and whether you like the content or not, I'm talking about just on the issue of delivery. And the uh, you know the the real issues will now come to the fore, and and it's an opportunity for people to. But they have to read. They're going to have to seek out information because it's not going to be so readily available as it is in normal years. When when a party uh, is comfortable or, or or appears to be comfortable, I get the rejections and the condemnations afterwards. But it appears to be comfortable with certain people getting up and representing them. Uh, you know, you wonder where the party is at. And I know this is putting you on the spot, and it, and it may not be fair because I don't even know if, if an analyst like yourself can put your finger on it this moment exactly what's going on with the Democratic Party. But, you know, we're concerned, obviously. There was always an impression of the Democratic Party in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, and even later than that, and their general attitude toward Israel. And I get the official position and the occupied being out and all that, but are you are you concerned that in that regard that there's just a feeling that it's not the same party in 2020 that it has been toward our community in Israel in the past or not? Well, first of all, you have to take it in the larger context of the issues that we're confronting and to see where, you know, democratic leaders have been around the country and and nationally on, you know, the, the issues, the violence, the all of the challenges that we are, are confronting. Nobody can deny, I think, also that, the, you know, you, President Trump has done many important things, moving the embassy, right. the recognition right. of the Golan, right. even the peace initiative, now the UAE deal. And uh, but I, I believe it's very important that we not allow Israel to become a partisan issue, and certainly the support for Israel. There are too many things at stake. There's so much. It's such an intricate relationship, and there's so much that we saw even this week with the joint exercises that are going on between the United States and Israel, flying F-35s in uh, in, in near Israel. Uh, launching the Arrow 2 missile, which is a ballistic missile intercept that is a joint U.S.-Israel project. It's things people don't even know that are going on that are in a joint thing. So it, it is a relationship that we have to protect no matter who gets elected as president and no matter who controls Congress. Right. There are troubling things. I'm, obviously, we've discussed it in the past, right. and and, um, and we have to work at it. But right now, our, our primary thing is we've got to make sure that Israel remains supported by both sides, that the U.S. is a relationship, right. be supported. And and also now we have the issues related to Iran coming up in the next few weeks. Right. Really critical decisions. All right, I'll move on from this in a second. But, but, but just, just to sum up, no, I know, but, <laughs> but just to sum up, you know a lot of people in our community are really upset with the Democratic Party. I, mean, I do, of course. No, no, I, I understand that. 
and 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 the only for many people the only thing they're happy with is that they really haven't changed much officially when it comes to attitude toward Israel. Uh, and I, I just wonder if a lot of people are going to feel that that's just not worth sticking around the Democratic Party for. Like it just it, 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 in terms of life here in America, with what the people that are now leading the party are endorsing or not condemning. You know, I don't know if it's worthwhile supporting them when 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 the only thing we can agree on at this point is their you know is what they contribute to the bipartisan support of Israel. So, uh, I don't know who the we is that you're referring to because your listeners, yes. But every poll shows the vast majority, even of Jews, are not voting on that on the same basis with the same considerations. I think it's unfortunate. I think people have to prioritize what is for us a life and death issue. And, and increasingly, you know, and I've warned about it for so many months, when we see the rise of anti-Semitism, you see elements within the Democratic Party, people associated with the Democratic Party, as you see some from the extreme right or associated Republican Party saying publicly anti-Semitic stuff that we have really serious challenges. Dividing the community and partisanship is not right now an appropriate response, especially under the strains of COVID and everything else. Our community is really being strained to the to, to the limit in many cases. We don't know what's going to happen yet. Rosh Hashanah, we don't know what institutions will survive. And more, most importantly, we have to see to it that the bipartisan support remains. And I know people look for simplistic answers, and I don't give it to you, because it's not the way. People have to be forced to think, and when you go into that booth, you're making an important decision. And so do it on a thoughtful basis, and most importantly, we have to get people to vote and to turn to register and to turn out to vote. That's number one. Number two, to learn about the issues. There are clear choices. There are big differences that are, are apparent. Uh, in between the two candidates and, of course, on the local level, there are many, many important congressional races where you have Democrats and Republicans who are great friends who are up for election or re-election. And this is really what is critical at this time. And uh, I think the, you know, the hype and the some of the fights, I, I, I hope there will be debates that will enable people, the two candidates to at least give indication because the man who sits in, in, in the Oval Office really does make the decisions, and and um, it's, it is important, and who they surround themselves with, who do, what their attitudes are, what who, who will be important, what kind of influence will others have, are all vital intri- issues that people have to take the time to read, to look at, to study, and come to conclusions. You know, we always find it interesting that our community is well represented, and now we'll talk about our community as one broad Jewish community, is is pretty well represented for a community our size in the swing states. If you look at it, you know, there are pockets of, you know, of influence in our community. What I didn't realize until this week, uh, when someone pointed it out in the news, is that there are really, you know, pretty uh, extreme pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel communities that are also well represented in a lot of those swing state so anybody listening in a state that's important i don't know i don't think they realize how critical their vote is right now and and people who don't get it that where we stand on israel really is as vital as any other issue and for many of us more vital or or and and for those who will stand up against anti-semitism who will provide security for our communities to provide our institutions you have to look at all those issues because these are existential issues for our communities and some of them for us as a people, and I'm telling you that the polls show that the vast majority of Jews do not vote on that basis. And it's a question, again, of motivating, educating them, but especially the people who do care. 
And when I hear that they don't vote and that they don't get it, this is the most important act you can take in the next few months other than the Chuva and Russia uh, shot up. But this is really uh, critical. And it gets too easy to get into political de- debates. Everybody's a pundit. Everybody, you know, knows better on certain things. But really, you got to be thoughtful because you got to go into that booth. The most important is to vote, and then you vote your conscience. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSegal.com and the NahumSegal Network, and of course, in the beloved NSN app. Speaking of elections, if there's no budget in the Israeli Knesset by Monday night, supposedly they go to another election. Are we very close to a new election in Israel, Mr. Honline? Well, this is the great new growth industry in Israel. <laughs> High tech was important, but <laughs> elections are the number one industry. This would be number four in uh, what in less than two years. Which the, is the people making ridiculous. the campaign posters are making a killing. A killing t-shirts. Wow, <laughs> and. Um, uh, and and you, if you watch, you can see BB aging on the T-shirts or whatever. <laughs> uh, but uh, yes, it is right because of this so law about the uh, budget. But there is a, an alternative, and that is that they get a hundred day extension to having to have the budget in. And there was a fight between whether you have a one year or two year. And Netanyahu is insisting one year. He said because of COVID. The, the others are saying the agreement calls for a two year budget because then you, in a year they can have the same crisis. There are people who believe Netanyahu wants to do it, so he prevents Gantz from becoming prime minister. The uh, people are blaming all sides for for the impasse. The most of all, the people of Israel blame the two candidates and blame uh, I don't know. It keeps changing about who they blame more, but the um, uh, the polls show that the right is is strong, and perhaps Netanyahu says this is the right time to solidify the hold. Um, uh, the uh, Yamina party moved up to about 18 seats, I saw in some polls, and the yeah. uh, Lapid's uh, party also, which was the breakaway, the split from uh, Benny Gantz, blue and white. So they, you know, again, you can't predict because, as we know, that it's a very fickle vote and, and in, in events can change things. I think like the UAE, unexpected uh, to most people, and the or, or events in Lebanon and the heating up on in Gaza now the border. There's so many issues that constantly come up in addition to the economic crisis and the health crisis that Israel faces. Um, I don't know who, who benefits from having an election. The people certainly feel that they don't, and hopefully it can be resolved. So- President Rivlin came out with a very emotional plea not to have an election. Now, I mean, yeah, but I, I didn't know until this conversation that there's also an extension possibility. You have to assume that's going to be implemented if they don't get to this budget agreement by Monday. I mean, I, now, now I don't even understand why Netanyahu reached out to Gantz if this extension, you know, is, is likely. Right? I mean, I know you don't like to predict, but you would say the extension is likely if, the, if this thing doesn't happen by Monday, right? I think if they read the public, uh, the anger and the unhappiness of the public with having an election, especially in the era of COVID, um, then I think that they will work out a way to find an extension, which only postpones. It kicks the can down the road, but you gain three months, three and a half months, and then a decision in the meantime, a lot will happen. And it also, you know, we'll see who gets elected here also has a relevance. Unbelievable. Well, I'm glad to hear about the extension, frankly, because I thought it was just inevitable if it doesn't happen by Monday that there be uh, that there would be new elections. But, well, I, but whatever action has to take place by Monday, that's correct. Right. And I, and I assume is that the presidential decision on the extension? 
Is that like he? No, no, no. Knesset has. It's a Knesset vote. Yeah. Oh boy. So it's not a fait accompli. Well, the cabinet, I think, first has to recommend it, and I'm pretty sure it needs to be ratified by the Knesset. I'm not 100 percent sure. The the committee in the Knesset is going to make the decision whether uh, there's some type of lockdown or how severe lockdown will be over the high holidays in Israel. The, the recommendation, but it has to be. First of all, it's a decision that the government has to take. Most of all, Gamzu's recommendation will carry a lot of weight. He's the COVID czar, and then. It has to get the approval of the health minister and others. And then this, this, the, there is a special internal body that the Netanyahu put together, a special COVID cat, uh, cabinet uh, that will review it and, this, and the committee. Uh, it's, a, it's a major decision, obviously, yeah. you know, for the economic implications and other things. It will have implications for people going to shul. Um, it's a it's a very serious matter, but you know the the increase in cases continues. Even the morbidity rate, I think, is stable. The um, the, the they need to get a handle on it, and it, you know it has to be crushed now. I mean, we're not even getting into the winter season and the flu season and stuff. When you know you have a greater danger that could be posed here and there. And I think there, there will be a lot of consideration still that many synagogues haven't decided exactly how they're going to handle it. And as I keep pointing out, those in our community who uh, are, are arrogant enough to dismiss this um, uh, COVID-19, especially because, quote-unquote, everybody had it and all the other reasons you hear in our community, if you do look at the graphs from 1918 and 1919, this second wave not only followed a complete flat line, I mean, it was gone compared to... Uh, uh, compared to what had happened in the first wave, was it was it was completely. I mean, it was a lower line than what we're what we went through here. And then the second wave was, if you look at it, the graph was much much worse uh, with that winter approaching. That first winter at the end of twenty eight, at the end of nineteen eighteen. So if history tells us anything, and I know with technology, and I know the possibility of vaccine therapeutics, you know, we think we're so much better a hundred years later. But if history teaches us anything, it's to be to be aware and to be wary of what can happen from an enemy like this plague. And you won't have a vaccine in time for the second wave. You know, they, everybody they throw money at everybody who who proposes that they have something. So far, we haven't seen. We know, we know that there are different medicines that work to some degree. Uh, and hopefully there will be, uh, we, we've learned the lessons and so forth. The treatment will be much more effective. Certainly look in New York State. I think we have to admit that they did a, a good job in, in containing it. Uh, but when kids go back to school, when uh, many other things we see, even the baseball teams, with all of the restrictions and everything, no no audiences, but they have to cancel games because players get, get sick. And there, there's no place where it doesn't happen. And while it's not at a critical level, let's say in New York, you saw the, the, an outburst in one community because of, of attendance at a big wedding. Yeah. It, it, it actually, in several communities, not just New York, elsewhere too, uh, it's a warning to all of us again. And again, you can't tell people often enough, and they dismiss the idea of wearing masks when it's proven to be helpful and effective, and everybody said they had it or nobody has it. Uh, then they're going to turn around the corner and somebody has it, and yeah. then all of a sudden they'll say, oh, I should have done it. And any doctor I've spoken to over the last week or so has said that uh, the weddings are going to end up, the, the irresponsible weddings are going to end up being our, our greatest enemy over the next few weeks uh, between now and the high holidays. Uh, will there be an official visit? Will the prime minister be heading to the UAE? Will the uh, head of the UAE be heading to Israel? Is there going to be an official thing here? Are you saying there will be a beheading? 
No. Oh, well, they will be heading. I got it. Um, that uh, no, I, I, I don't think it's it's going. To, first of all, they've talked on the phone. I do think that there will be a ceremony in a couple of weeks. I think they'll be in Washington, most likely. And uh, they're still working on details uh, of the agreements. I asked last night the head of the, uh, the Jewish community at Ross Creole in the middle of the night, actually. Um, and he told me the response there is really amazing, not just in the Jewish community, but in the non-Jewish communities, in the in the amongst the Muslim population, the Emirati population. Emiratis actually make up only about ten percent of the population. Ninety percent are foreign workers and expat, uh, expats from other countries who are, who are in um, uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai primarily, uh, but also the other the smaller Emirates. Um, but there is also a lot of misreporting about the size of the community. People are throwing around numbers of 3,000. I saw published several times. It's closer to 300 in in the main communities. There may be isolated other people and some who come. There are 200 Israeli companies that do work inside the, or have relationships or offices uh, or joint ventures with uh, Emiratis uh, and Emirati businesses. But uh, uh, 44% of Emiratis say they want to visit Israel. Wow. I think 140% of Israelis want to visit UAE. <laughs> yeah. and, and as I've said, they're, they're already working on the Pesach program. And and um, BB appeared on the TV there, which was uh, important to talk about the flights, which I think could be the first thing that we see. Um, we'll see if any of the other countries come in to Sudan fired the foreign minister for talking to his Israeli counterpart and indicating that they were moving. And on the other hand, we heard there are talks going on between them for uh, the possibility of opening diplomatic relations. Why did I think it was closer than that? Why do, when I saw the story, I said I, I thought there was a history with Israel and the Sudan that was pretty positive over the last few years. Well, not years, but uh, certainly recently it has been better. There are times Sudan was very hostile at times. Um, and remember, they had the splits with southern Sudan, and Israel was closely aligned with southern Sudan. Uh, but the but of late, they they have some moderated position indicating they're prepared to talk, but a lot of it has to do with wanting better relations with the U.S. and uh, their security situation. They're part of the Egyptian-Ethiopian-Sudanese conflict over the building of the big dam at uh, in the Blue Nile at the uh, waters in, in uh, Ethiopia, right near the border with Sudan. And that's a very tense situation because Egypt can't tolerate it. Sudan also, uh, if the waters are diverted, and the, right now it's quieter, but the talks broke down over it. So Sudan has a lot of, uh, and it's a very poor country, very bad conditions there. Um, and the big fight that emerged this week was about the F-35s that, that UAE is seeking from the United States, yeah. which Israel has opposed. All of a sudden, you think that may have been part of the deal? <laughs> well, I'm sure that it's not. It was certainly not part of the deal with Israel. And um, Ambassador Friedman played it down and said, "Well, it'll take years to do, and you know they'll maintain Israel's qualitative edge." Well, it depends who's making the decisions then, and what um, the fear, of course, that Israel has is that this this is a game changer, yeah. this plane. And today, the government is favorable. What happens? The government changes; it can fall into hostile hands. Uh, as we know, weapons that, that were supplied to Iran before the revolution, you know, fell into many's hands, and and that, by the way, was the biggest fight of this week. 
was the is the continuing um, deadline coming uh, for September 18th, actually, but even before, to have uh, the arms embargo against Iran extended, and the Security Council turned down the U.S. Uh, request to extend it. Now, the United States is proposing a snapback provision, and all of the seven Gulf states, that means the UAE, even Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain, all of them signed against Iran, which is a, a, a really historic move that got almost no attention and no coverage, but they joined the United States' position in, uh, in uh, supporting an extension uh, of the arms embargo, which ends in October, which means that they can buy planes, tanks, other things from China, Russia, others who are just chomping at the bit to send it to them, and they will then provide it to their terrorist allies. The United States now is moving on a provision in the JCPOA, and this may sound technical, but believe me, this is a life and that issue for us um, about well, how strong Iran is and if they're able to break through, because the ballistic missile uh, ban ends in, in two years, three years, and as we've seen, it flies by. And the snapback is a provision that says when, when there's a violation of the accord, uh, uh, anybody can send, can... Uh, have them snap back to the, the sanctions that were imposed by the Security Council between 2006 and 2010. And they were all suspended when they signed the JCPA, the uh, JCPOA, the agreement. Now the United States is saying that these all should be reimposed. The United States certainly will. Unfortunately, the European, and especially the big three, um, France, England, and Germany, are not cooperating and not moving the same, in the right direction. The they have not come up with an alternative. There, there were proposals to extend it for a defined period, and the um, we know that the the economy of Iran is teetering, and they are counting on the fact that, that the sanctions will, will be lifted, and uh, calling on the Europeans to also lift economics to supplant the United States on the economic front. It's really critical as we see Iran continuing. Uh, it revealed new missiles that they, uh, one with a 1,400-kilometer range named for Qasem Soleimani uh, that can go 1,100 kilometers. The, um, the, the, they're revealing new weapons. They did very extensive naval maneuvers. Um, they they um, uh, harassed a ship carrying uh, oil and was released, but now they claim they have one of the UAE ships. Uh, and they, they, but they are continuing all the support for terrorism everywhere. And this is uh, so critical, what will happen. And you see that the, the world learns nothing, <laughs> that they will allow Iran to continue. Are any of those Iranian missiles heading to Venezuela? Oh, very good question, actually, because you have nine ships that were seized. Now Iran says the ships aren't theirs, the oil wasn't theirs. They sold the ships before they did it. And we know that Iran, by the way, is, is exporting at least double the amount of oil that is reported because what they do is they send the tankers out to, to the ocean and then transfer it to other ships. So, and then transponders are off, so there's the, the tracking systems don't indicate the truth about the export, the illicit export of, of oil. Uh, but they do send it free to, to Venezuela, to Syria. Uh, in Venezuela, they get in return gold, as we know from the, the uh, planes that were carrying it. The United States has imposed sanctions on the shipping lines and the ships and the captains even. Um, they did seize uh, the oil. I think they took 1.1 million barrels off of the ships. These were Greek-flagged Greek, uh, ships. 
but they got him on the seas and they took off the oil because they were in violation of the sanctions against both Venezuela and Iran. Uh, and now Iran says, well, they're not our ships, it's not our oil. You know, we don't know who you are. We didn't know we had oil. And the, um, so, you know, each of these things I know is it's so complicated, but the implications are immense. If, if anybody goes to the website of the Washington Institute and looks up Matthew Levitt, uh, a wonderful, true, wonderful uh, scholar, uh, former, I think, Treasury Department official, maybe CIA, and he did a map of Hezbollah around the world. Everybody should go and look at it. It will knock your socks off. And remember, this is Iran. When you see Hezbollah, you're seeing Iran. And he did, an in, uh, where they collected all of the data about Hezbollah's undercover activities, including the United States, South America, Brazil, let alone, of course, the Middle East and the places we know, to go and, and take a look at it. I mean, you, I, I was about to ask you about the United States. You just said it, though. So there, there is a significant Hezbollah presence in the United States? Is that the right word? There is activity here in the United States. There have been Hezbollah operatives uh, who have been caught repeatedly and, and sentenced, some sentenced. Most of them are not caught. But we know even, and I've talked about it before, the illicit cigarette business that they run. They right. run tra- drug trafficking. Uh, we know that there's been an, an narco-terrorism activities. The, of course, they, the United States is a, is a good place to make money. Yeah, that's an understatement. Um, you know, so the impression was once this UAE, UAE deal was done, I think the White House and many others started alluding to the fact that uh, this is going to be a trend now. There'll be other Gulf states and other countries in that region that have an interest in, in making a deal with Israel. Now, I always thought that um, that, or, or I think the impression was given to us that Saudi Arabia uh, was a real candidate uh, for that type of agreement, that type of relationship with Israel. And uh, now it seems, based on some, what some of the pundits are saying, that Saudi Arabia would only agree uh, to some type of arrangement like that with Israel if there would be, uh, in fact, a Palestinian state. Do you think that that will hold up an Israeli-Saudi uh, agreement? Well, that's what the crown prince said. It's not just the pundits. Oh, the officials in Saudi Arabia have said, uh, I, I can tell you that MBS, the crown prince, said to me that, that we won't be the first, but we won't be the last to make peace with Israel. So now there is a first uh, amongst them in the sea, uh, and there are others like Bahrain who could do it, Oman who could be next. Um, you know, the Saudis are very concerned about reaction in their streets, but the, the they've taken some bold moves against the people when they want to, and I hope that... This is one. I mean, we did discuss it. The, the Crown Prince talked about his envision, you know, this new city that he's building. Um, and that he looked for, for Israel's role. It's going to be actually opposite. It'll go from Egypt all the way across to Aqaba. Uh, and he talked about Israel and Israeli technology and how beneficial it will be. We'll see if they give overflight rights so that Israeli planes flying, let's say, to the UAE could then fly on to, uh, it can fly over Saudi Arabia and also then fly onto the Far East, because that route cuts off hours from the flights and would be a boon for Israelis, and especially with all the technology uh, exchanges and investments and stuff that is, is going on. And that can be done without full ties, right? That, all, that Many things can be done without full ties. And as you know, that there have been a lot of commercial enterprises operative in, in the UAE for many years and in other uh, parts of the Gulf. Uh, without formal relations, doing it discreetly, but not an unknown 
uh, activity. You know, we, we've been doing this weekly update a long time, and one of the topics that's come up a lot over the last 15 years is the assassination of the, of the Prime Minister of Lebanon. And, and and based on what we saw this week, Malcolm, I, I, I don't know if I've ever <laughs> if I've ever observed such a long um, such a long legal process that was just completely surrounded and enveloped by injustice. And I think this week's decision indicates the same. Am I right? It's a further extension of the injustice that they don't bring to trial. They know, uh, and they put they you know they issued warrants for arrest for people who it's all an absentiate. You know, it's done by the uh, by the commission in Hague. Um, I think uh, one particular person may have been may have been caught or right. will be tried. But the but the fact is that they found what what is important to establish the fact that Hezbollah was responsible, Hezbollah agents for the murder of Hariri, uh, the prime minister. The, the current situation in Lebanon is disastrous. It's a complete collapse. Um, I don't know whether the Hezbollah will pay the price because they, they are asserting control and they're trying to uh, avoid responsibility, though it looks increasingly um, that it's is directly their responsibility for the explosion, that they were certainly in control of the port and that they had imported a lot of this nitrate from the Iranians. We know they found in Germany, Great Britain, Cyprus, other places, Hezbollah storing the nitrates to be used as a weapon. It can be used for fertilizer, too, but... Clearly, their intention was against Israel. The, um, but the, you know, the tragedy of the destruction uh, almost 200 people dead, many thousands wounded, uh, but and the economic impact of a country that was already in dire straits, and it was once such a beautiful uh, uh, country. And and uh, I think I mentioned last week, but the reports that the synagogue in Beirut was destroyed are not true. The building near it was destroyed, but not. Synagogue itself, which was just rebuilt, even though there's hardly any Jewish community, any Jews there, not a Jewish community, uh, but expats from the Jewish community helped rebuild it. It cost up millions of dollars. It was a beautiful building. It is a beautiful building, but it was not, uh, thank God, destroyed. So the, the situation in Lebanon is, is still very tense. Israel has lessened its presence on the northern border because they feel Hezbollah now won't risk it. They're preoccupied with the on-the-ground situation. But you can never tell if they want a diversion, if they feel that they need to heat up the border. You also see the Russian troops moving in, in, in along the Syrian border, maybe pushing the um, Iranians back, Iranian militias back. But the um, all of these places remain extremely tense. And, of course, from Gaza, and I know people don't seem to take seriously these balloons that come with fuels, but with with uh, explosive uh, fuel that when it hits the ground it sets a fire there were dozens of fires in a single day almost every day there's not one incident two incidents there are many and now israel deployed a new laser gun that shoots down they steady shot down many uh, dozens of uh, of the of these balloons but you know they can float very far some have floated to the outskirts of tel aviv one landed again near in the yard of a kindergarten and some have have landed in kin, in right in the kindergartens themselves. In the past, these are are it's a, a such an insidious thing, and you know they do it sometimes with colorful balloons so that children will pick it up, <clears throat> and then of course it uh, can cause a lot of uh, harm. I don't know. On the southern border, Israel has. I mean, I, I don't want to say never hesitated because they sometimes have hesitated. Uh, but 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 I don't think they've ever waited this long to get to the root of the matter 
and to take care of things to you know and, and make sure eliminate you know the possibility of, of people doing this type of activity. But, it, but it's very hard. Now. I mean, where do you find if you if you had balloons being launched here? Look, we had firecrackers disrupting the life in the communities, and people didn't track it down. Here, the Israelis are actively seeking it out, trying to find out. They stopped the shipment of balloons into into Gaza that were coming, you know, through uh, Karen Shalom, and, and they are actively looking for it. But, you know, it's done in people's pockets. It takes nothing to do it. A bottle of fuel, you, you take a couple balloons, and, you know, it's almost impossible to track all, all of these people, and they launch many more than actually cross the border. Some of them have actually hit in their own in, in, within Gaza itself. So, I mean, I have great sympathy for what the Israelis uh, are doing. You can't, you know, they don't have an iron dome against uh, against balloons. But it is really, um, I think it's a violation of, of uh, Geneva Accords because it's, it targets civilian population, and it does land in civilian areas. It has burnt many fields, many, many fields, so it's the livelihood of people that's affected. And when they start coming across, people have to hide again, go into the shelters, because you don't know where they're going to land. Unbelievable. I thank you, Mr. Holine. We will. Uh... Can I just say there's one really important uh, good news, and that was, uh, aside from the UAE thing, and that was the overflight yesterday by German planes and Israeli planes over Dachau and over the Munich Olympics, where the the heads of the two air forces joined uh, with fighters from both countries and paying tribute to the people below and the and to the Munich 11 uh, near Firstenfeldbruck uh, Air Force Base. Uh, again, symbolic, but um, very touching, I think. Uh, those of you who have uh, children and grandchildren who have not heard of the uh, Munich Massacre of 1972, try to update them uh, about what uh, that episode was all about. And um, as we discussed on the show recently, you could tell them the story of how the uh, Major League Baseball Jewish ball players and Reggie Jackson commemorated uh, that event, you know, it's funny because when we were somewhat uh, upset when um, when politics seeped into sports, uh, a friend of mine called and said, uh, uh, "Don't jump to being uh, upset about it because 38 years ago was it 48? 48 years ago, um, members, Jewish members of the Oakland A's and Reggie Jackson actually wore black armbands in solidarity with Israel." And the athletes of the Munich Olympics after that episode, I thought that was interesting. Mm, so, so sometimes I, I got to be careful if I complain about politics seeping into sports and stuff being written on basketball courts. I have to remember that sometimes the politics that seep into sports are politics that uh, that are you know sympathetic toward the Jewish people. So, anyway, just thought I'd point that out. Have a wonderful Shabbos, Mr. Good Shabbos and good. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time here at JM in the AM.